Shabbat Shalom, everybody. This is indeed where I grew up. Um, I will tell you up front that um, raised in this beautiful city and this wonderful congregation, I was its least observant member. You understand that's saying something. And um, it's all about excellence. And I also tell my students and those who are, will listen that I grew up an atheist in San Francisco. It turns out San Francisco is an excellent place to be an atheist because there's so many good things to do. And it was in college that I found God, uh, for which my mother has still not really forgiven Harvard University. But nonetheless, I did. I think it was the semester of love for me. I met God and Ilana, my then girlfriend, who has now been my wife for 33 years. Um, so it could have been hormonal more than anything else. I'm not sure. But I have been more or less with the same God and the same spouse for all that time. I am nothing if not persistent. I had planned on being a politician. I was an intern for United States Senator Alan Cranston one summer in college. Many of you may remember him, great man. I was an LBJ intern uh, for, in the US Congress. My roommate that summer is sitting in the room with his family. And, uh, and then I came back to San Francisco my junior year, uh, the summer after, to work for the assemblyman from San Francisco, a man named Willie Brown. And at the end of the summer, Mr. Brown offered to pay me retroactively for my work and offered to hire me after I graduated. So I came back from college, moved to San Francisco, planned to be a politician, was working the district, uh, representing the speaker, and, uh, and realized I couldn't be a politician. That the kind of life that it demanded of me and the kinds of relationships it expected of me, in which people seem to use each other rather than to develop actual mutual respect. I'm not saying that's true for other people, but that's what I was encountering. Made me realize that I can't do that kind of work. And I didn't really have a fallback plan. I've never been much for fallback plans. Uh, but Ilana, my wife, uh, is excellent at fallback plans, so now I don't have to have, I don't have to have plans at all anymore. <laughs> and she said to me, you've always talked about going to rabbinical school at the end of a glorious political career, and if that's what you want to do, you should do it now, because you never know what life is going to bring. So, I went to the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is the conservative rabbinical school in New York, and, um, and was ordained five years later, and I took a pulpit in Southern California in a place called Mission Viejo. I'll tell you a story about my mother uh, and Mission Viejo. My mother is an ardent San Francisco patriot, and when I told her that I was taking a pulpit in Southern California, she said without a hint of irony, Palo Alto is lovely. <laughs> so, went to Mission Viejo, and, and now I want to tell you something about young rabbis, or at least young rabbis back in the day. 
We go into this business because we think if we hustle enough, if we smile enough, if we hug enough, if we go to enough, teach enough classes, do enough services, that, that we will ultimately produce a religious revival in our congregation. Everyone will become observant, devoted, fanatical Jews, and it doesn't always work out that way. But I threw myself into it, and I gave it everything I could, and the, the place was doing pretty good. We went from 200 families, five years later we were 600 families. And we had all kinds of education classes and Talmud classes, and lots of stuff going on. And then, as often happens, life messes with you. Uh, my wife became pregnant with twins. Kids were born, Jacob and Shira. And when they were about two and a half, Jacob was diagnosed as severely autistic. We'll talk about that for those of you who are gluttons for punishment on Sunday morning and what it means to build truly inclusive communities. But suffice it to say that for me, this created a religious crisis because most conservative rabbis back then, I think, believed in the same God as the Orthodox, except one who didn't sweat the details quite so much. So, all-knowing, in control, whatever happens, happens for a reason, it's all for the best. All of that came crashing down with Jacob's diagnosis. Because if I say that everything happens is for the best and happens for a reason, then I'm saying that Jacob deserves the autism, and I couldn't say that, I couldn't betray my son. So for two years, I stopped talking to God. I never stopped believing in God. I just knew that it would be better if he and I did not converse. It turns out that if you want a job in which you never ever talk to or about God, the American congregation is the perfect place to work. <laughs> Two years, nobody noticed. And then I realized I needed to work through, how could this happen? How could I live in a universe in which that could happen? I spend all my time being good, doing good, taking care of people, and then this happens in, in the heart of my own family. How could that be? Now, I need to tell you one other thing, and I don't mean to put her on the spot. My mother is a psychoanalyst, which meant I couldn't go talk to a therapist about that problem. You understand why. That door was closed for me. So I did the alternative, which is I decided to get a doctorate. And I called up Dr. David Ellenson, who, if you don't know him, you should. He is, was the immediate past president of Hebrew Union College. Um, he had been a professor of Jewish thought in the Los Angeles campus. He moved to New York. He agreed to be my doctoral supervisor, and so I started reading, and what I said to him is, the topic of the dissertation, you can say yes or no, but you don't get to suggest another topic. Because what I need to work out is how could this happen? How does the universe work? What kind of a world are we in? And to do that, I'm gonna need some disciplined reading, so you can say that's not a doctoral topic, and I'll go away but you can't propose something else. And he agreed. So I started reading Darwinian evolution. I started reading cognitive neurobiology. I started reading cosmogony and some astrophysics, anything that didn't have mathematical formulas. I'm not good at math, I'm a rabbi. And, 
And here's where I like to say that I invented process theology. I realized that the world was dynamic and interactive, that it's not made of solid substances that bang on the outside, but that everything is enmeshed in everything else, that everything in the universe is making decisions about its own future, which then constrains and opens new possibilities for the rest of creation. I realized that God wasn't separate from the universe, but is actually, the universe is marinating in the divine. I realized that God doesn't and cannot use coercive power. All these things I realized reading science. And then you can imagine my dismay when I picked up a book and I read the chapter on process theology and realized that some guy had beat me to the punch 100 years ago. There was a scholar whose last name was Whitehead. He was a mathematician in England. He came to Harvard, taught at the philosophy department. He invented this thing called process theology did a very good job of it, although, frankly, the PR he could have worked on. So I want to talk to you about this new, different way, new for us, way of thinking about the divine. Because the way I grew up, even here, the way I was taught by Rabbi Asher of blessed memory, does anybody here remember what a great, great rabbi he was? To be, to be in his house uh, is really a huge honor for me, and he continues to inform the way I walk in the world. So you have a history of great rabbis here, and uh, the current crop live up to it, too. Um, the God I was introduced here was still that all-powerful, outside of space, outside of time, eternal God. And, and I mentioned to you, I can't live with that God anymore. That God, you can pick the crisis in your own life. We all have one. You can pick any historical catastrophe you'd like to pick. Um, we all know a bunch. Right? Any one of them throw into dispute the idea that things are happening the way they're supposed to. What kind of a maniac would want it to be like this? Wouldn't do something about it. So. What I want to offer you is a way of thinking about a universe that is constantly becoming. See, it turns out that being is a logical abstraction. Nothing ever is. Something is on the way to being, becoming something. And I suppose if you stopped the movie and you did a snapshot of that second, you could talk about being. But nothing just is. You're always on the way. And that's true for everything in the universe. And nothing is on the way by itself. We're all on the way, always impacted by each other. Everything in the universe is constantly accommodating. Everything in the universe has an interiority and an exteriority. What it means for others and then what it's doing on the inside. So what does that mean for, for how God works in the world? I will give you an illustration. About five years ago, I bought a new car. Cars have changed a lot in the last 10 years. To my mind, the biggest change is that there is now a woman who lives just under the radio in the dashboard. Some of you may remember the 1960s sitcom, My Mother the Car. We're all driving My Mother the Car. Now, the great thing about this woman, I call her Glynis, 
because she has an accent that I can't exactly place, Australia, Rhodesia, some Commonwealth country, I'm not sure. When I tell Glynis where I want to go, and I get to pick the location, Glynis tells me the optimal way to get to that location. Now, she's not all-knowing. Sometimes they're working on the street, no one told her that. <laughs> but she's very smart. And so most of the time, I do what Glynis suggests I should do. But not always. Sometimes, I think I know better than her. Sometimes, I'm really hungry and I'm thinking about the next meal. Sometimes, and this may be just unique to LA, I'm astounded at the person in the car next to me who is curling eyelashes while eating a sandwich, holding a milkshake, and talking on the phone. <laughs> and driving. <laughs> For whatever reason, Glynis says at the corner, take a right, and I don't. I drive through. Glynis does not respond like the god of dominant theology by saying, that's it, you have failed to heed my instruction, and so you are damned to drive on the 405 forever. <laughs> Glynis says, recalculating. <laughs> and that's exactly how I think God works with us and everything in the universe. We know what the optimal goal is. And God gives us an intuition of how best to arrive at that goal. That process people call the lure, L-U-R-E. God lures us, invites us to be our optimum. The lure is optimal in terms of justice, experience, compassion, relationship. Those four. And you don't need anyone to tell you what that optimum is. You know it. But sometimes it gets buried in such a way that you don't have access to it. You know who I learned this from, this kind of internal intuition of right? I learned it from my mother. When her mother, my grandmother, would want us to visit, she'd say, come visit, and mom would say, go visit your grandmother. And I, being a teenager, I would say, I don't want to visit my grandmother, I want to go see my friends. And my mother, unbeknownst to her, a process thinker, would say, I'm not going to tell you what to do, you know what's right. <laughs> I hated that. But what that does is that awakens our own interior compass. When someone tells you on the outside what to do, you spend your energy resisting them, whether they're right or not. It keeps us permanently infantile. But I don't believe that God and the universe work that way. I believe that we are born with a compass. We're born with a sense of that optimal way to advance justice and love and compassion and experience. And then the world tries to batter it out of us. And convention tries to beat it out of us. 
And keeping that little light alive, that's the purpose of religion when it's understood correctly. Religion is to keep a counter voice going that reminds you that the light is shining. So that's what this rich tradition does for us. It keeps us in constant dialogue with sage men and women who have lived across the ages. And they also listened with an inner ear and distilled what they heard into words, into prayers, into Torah. And there we can encounter God if we add to it our own listening. Now that means a couple things. First of all, because I don't believe in an up there, out there God who's issuing parking tickets or infractions of one kind or another, because I believe that the universe is marinating in the divine and that it bubbles up from within us, it means we have to make time to listen to ourselves, to really hear what it is we know. When I was a young rabbi and I knew everything, People who would come to me for counseling, I would listen just long enough to figure out what they needed to do, and then I would tell them. You can imagine how effective that was. <laughs> now that I am an old rabbi and I know virtually nothing, I know that my job is to hold up a mirror so that people can get a glimpse of themselves. And that once I've made it possible for them to see themselves as they are, then I don't need to tell them what to do, they know what to do. Often I still don't, but they do. So what would it mean to think of God and Torah and prayer in that way? It means, among other things, that God is no longer the bully in the sky. I remember one of the blessings of my work is that I get an annual 10-day trip to Jerusalem. It's a great thing. And I remember walking outside the walls of the old city and looking up in the heavens and realizing the bully wasn't there anymore. I don't blame God for giving my son autism because I don't believe God does things like that. I don't think that anything you could do in a movie studio in Hollywood is something godlike. It's a technical trick, right? Here's, what, here's where I find God. When, when Jacob was diagnosed, one of the things they did was they told me all the things he would never successfully accomplish. It was not the best day of my life. Three years ago, Jacob, after incredible work, got up on the stage, walked over to the principal of the high school, and took an accredited high school diploma in his hand and walked off the stage. As you can imagine, I couldn't see anything. Thank God for those phones with cameras in them because I was able to later on look at the recording. All the experts had said he could never do that, but my Jacob and my God did something amazing together. Not supernatural, but nature is super, right? And by refusing to give up on Jacob, by refusing to let Jacob give up on Jacob. He was able to be self-surpassing in a way that only God and all of creation are self-surpassing. Second story. I mentioned the same grandmother twice. Grandma Dottie was legally blind. And 
My grandfather did the shopping, paid the checks, covered everything. And when he died, we all assumed that she would either die soon thereafter or have to be institutionalized. But my grandma Dottie, among her many virtues, was a very stubborn woman. And she wouldn't. And she lived on her own for 10 years additional. Somehow she dug down deep and she found a way to make a life. You can't do that in a movie set. That's not some kind of technical change. That's something that only a God who is within us all is capable of, of reminding us of the greatness of our possibility. So we'll have lots to talk about. Here's what you give up. You give up the notion that there's someone out there who will clean up after you. There is, trust me, no one who will clean up after us. Which means, if there's cleaning up to do, we need to roll up our sleeves and do it ourselves. Part of the benefit of this way of understanding God as a great cosmic companion is that far from infantilizing us, it awakens us to our responsibility to the creation of which we are a part. It also changes what you mean by commandment. So I want to say that, and then I promise I'll stop, and those of you who want to stay for dinner will have a chance to talk more, right? So, you know, in the old vision, you got this Charlton Heston-y guy up in the sky, and he barks orders, and you do them because you don't want to get zapped, or you don't want hellfire, or you don't want whatever the, uh, you know, an endless family meal, whatever you don't want. <laughs> so, I don't believe in that God, right? And if that's atheism, then I'm an atheist. But here's what I think commandment is. I think what moves us in the world is love. Think about someone who had an enormous constructive impact on your life. A parent, a grandparent, a sibling, a teacher, a friend. What changed your life wasn't their authority to make you do something you didn't want to do. That you're still in recovery from. What changed your life was that when you saw them, they reflected back you in your greatness. And when you couldn't believe in yourself, they supplied the belief for you. They carried it for you. And because they so believed in you and so could see you as you could be, they gave you the courage to take that leap. That's what I believe a mitzvah is. The Hebrew word mitzvah means a command. But you know, the language of the rabbis isn't Hebrew. The language of the rabbis is Aramaic. And in Aramaic, that same three-lettered root for mitzvah does not mean command, it means connection. Many of us don't believe in a God who barks orders. But there isn't a person in this room who doesn't, when they start saying the bracha over candle lighting with someone they love, get a little teary-eyed. 
Because American Jews understand that what we're doing is about connection. It's about joining with each other and making community. It's about standing with those who've come before us, who we remember when we do these rituals that they also did. It's about passing on not just values to our children, but moments, experiences, little distilled particles of love that they can wrap into their hearts and take with them into life. And 40 years later, when they're having a tough time, they can light the candles and they can unwrap our love yet again. Don't we believe in that? And is there anything more precious than to be given that? That's what I believe mitzvot are. Now, the last thing I'll say on the subject is that this approach to Judaism makes the whole denominational thing outmoded. All of the big denominational fights in Jewish life are 19th century physics fights. Is God up there dropping a book on our head, yes or no? The Orthodox say yes, the Reformed say no, the Conservatives say, well, depends on what you mean by drop a book on your head. <laughs> but what if we agree we don't believe that that's how God works anyway? that when we say God, we mean there's a oneness that undergirds everything and that makes relationship possible and that connects us to it all. And that oneness is constantly seeking to invite all of creation to greater connection, greater relationship. In that case, there are gonna be lots of different ways to carry that tradition into today. And there'll be some people who will like more Debbie Friedman and less Debbie Friedman, or more guitar and less guitar, or strict follow the rules and don't tell me what to do, right? We'll all do that, but, but our differences will be much more temperamental and aesthetic than they'll be anything else. I think this is what most American Jews actually believe. I also think that most American Jews don't think they're allowed to believe it. So I hereby give you permission. 